Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, we ended the last chapter that we looked at with those terrifying words, thus Esau despised his birthright. And as we go into chapter 26, we learn a little bit more of what he despised. In chapter 26, we have all the promises and blessings of God upon Isaac, and we see them being poured out upon him in great measure. And so we get a bit of a picture of the incredible blessing and privilege that Esau just simply despised and exchanged for one simple meal. And you would expect that after having witnessed that in chapter 26, that Esau would start rethinking what he had done and perhaps come to God in repentance. But instead, when we come to the end of the chapter, we see that Esau doubles down. He keeps going in the bad way that he chose to go. He chooses earthly things. He turns his back on God, on God's promises, on God's blessings, on God's covenant. And there is in Esau's soul and his life a restless evil, a discontent, always lusting and always striving to satisfy the baser appetites. That's the life of the sinner. That's the life of the carnal person. And it's so different than the life of the redeemed sinner, the life of the forgiven sinner, the life of the sinner who has come to know the grace of God. That life is seen in our chapter in the life of Isaac, a life of peace, a life of blessing, a life of trusting in and waiting on the Lord. And so we're going to go through this chapter section by section, starting here in verse 1. There was a famine in the land, and the Holy Spirit adds, besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham, because the Holy Spirit knew when he inspired these words that in the 21st century and in many other centuries, there'll be lots of scholars who would say, well, look at this. Abraham went to Egypt and pretended that his wife was his sister. Abraham went to Jerah and pretended his wife was his sister. Isaac went to Jerah and pretended his wife was his sister. Obviously, these are the same story that are just being told in different ways. You see, many people, the more education they get, the less they're able to believe the truth. And so a lot of scholars just think this is just another variation of an old story which is being told in a different way. But the Lord says, just to make things clear, this is not the same famine. This is another one. This is not the same story. And so we get to choose. Do we believe God or do we believe the people that think they're intelligent? And so we believe what the word says. This is another case, even though it's surprising that this is going to happen to Isaac, what happened twice to his father, but it happens. It's a unique event. He, he went to Jerah to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. And there we stop again because Abimelech was the name of the fellow that Abraham was dealing with. And he, that was a long time ago. Is it the same guy? Well, to make a long story short, Abimelech means my father is king. Could be that he's the son with the same name. That often happens. You have a king that names his son the same name. But Abimelech is most likely a title, just like Pharaoh is a title, which is passed on from king to king over the ages. And 
way later in David's time when he deals with the king, uh, with, with Achish. Uh, he is called in the scriptures also at one point Abimelech. He's got a similar title. So this is probably a title of the kings. And this is most likely not the king that Abraham dealt with when he was in Jerah. So he's king of the Philistines. And here we meet our intelligent academics again because the academics say, ah, the Philistines. Another proof that you can't trust the Bible because the Philistines were seafaring peoples and there was a massive uh, movement of the seafaring peoples, the peoples that, that sailed around and were living on the coasts and the islands in the Mediterranean. There's a huge influx of them in around 1200 BC. So that's more than half a millennium after our text. And so the academics say, well, obviously it can't be the Philistines. Obviously the Bible's wrong again, right? Not right. The, the Bible's never wrong because God is truth and whatever he says is true. And so this is most likely before the huge influx of Philistines, the sea peoples in 1200, which happens a lot later, many centuries later, this is most likely an outpost of these people. They were trade, traders. They traded a lot. And if, you, if you're down in Egypt and you go up to up the coast, there, there was this ancient trading route. It went right past Gerar, and then it would go up, and then it would cut in, go over the mountains, uh, go right by Nazareth, actually, go towards the Sea of Galilee, and then it would go up to, to Damascus. It was a very, very important trading route, and it makes sense that the seafaring peoples would have some kind of an, kind of an outpost there to tie in to that trade going north and going south. So he goes to Gerar, and he goes to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. The Philistines were descendants of Ham, specifically of Ham's son Mitzrayim. And Ham's son Mitzrayim is also the ancestor of the Egyptians. So there's a, a common heritage that the Philistines and the Egyptians have. They were mainly based in Crete, which is that island south of of Greece. There was a large-scale movement from there to the promised land at around 1200. And then the Lord says to him, as he's in Gerard, do not go down to Egypt, but dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Do not go down to Egypt. Now, Egypt was the sensible choice, because Gerard already, if there's a famine, there's no food. Gerar is connected to the seafaring peoples and their trading routes, but it's just a small outpost. You might get some food there, but if you go down to Egypt, it was a massive and major uh, connection point for trade. You're likely to find a lot more food there. They also had big storehouses, even though this is way before the time of Joseph. And so it made sense to keep going to Egypt. That's where Abraham went when there was a famine. But the Lord says to Isaac, you're not going to do that. You're going to stay here. And so Isaac has to live by faith, and he does. He has to wait on the Lord. He has to obey the Lord and trust that the Lord can provide for him. The Lord says, you're going to be here as a sojourner, verse 3, sojourn. And the verb to sojourn means to live as a foreigner. And so Isaac is called to live by faith. He has to live by the, the promises that God has given. What has God promised to Abraham, to Isaac? He's promised, I'm going to give you this whole land. I'm going to give you a great nation as your descendants. Isaac doesn't have either of those. All he owns in the promised land is a tomb, a place to die, a place to be buried. That's all he's got. 
And so he's going to live on the edge of the land of promise and just wait for God to keep his promises. Now, you see a little hint of the future glory of the work of God in his kingdom where God says, I will give to your offspring there in verse 4, all these lands. He puts it in the plural. There's a little hint there of the future of the church inheriting the entire earth, not just the land of Canaan, but the entire earth. And in your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. We've heard that said to Abraham. We hear it said to Isaac here, and it's a prophecy of the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, that in the, the seed of the woman, in the descendant of the covenant, the one who is to come, the Messiah, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. And so we see a picture or a prophecy of the Lord Jesus Christ there in verse 4. And then he says something surprising. Look at verse 5. What's surprising about verse 5? He gives these glorious promises and he says he's going to keep them because Abraham obeyed my voice. And that's a little bit shocking to hear. God says, I'm going to give this incredible glorious promises. I'm going to fulfill them because of what a human being did. And we might think to ourselves, is, is that really reformed? Is God being reformed here? And of course, that's the wrong question to answer, isn't it? Or to ask, because God doesn't have to conform to what we think, to our theology. We have to conform to who God is and what he says. And so why is God calling attention to the obedience of Abraham? Isn't this kind of a works righteousness that Abraham did something and then God gave him something back? No, that's not the case at all. And we dealt with that already back in Genesis chapter 22. You remember 22 verse 18, after he had been ready to sacrifice his son, the Lord says, in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. What is God saying by that? He's saying this, that sovereignly ordained blessing comes in the way of faith. That's the channel God opens up. Faith walks in obedience. You see, God doesn't promise blessings, and then when we don't believe them and live godless lives, he says, well, I'm going to give you the blessings anyway. No, then he gives us the curses of the covenant if we disobey. But God gives his blessings, and they are experienced as in the way of faith and obedience. That's what the scripture says. Think of Hebrews chapter 11. By faith, Abraham obeyed. So Abraham obeying God's voice there in verse 5 is not because he was a good person and he did some good things and now God owes him. Abraham obeyed because he had faith. And where did he get the faith from? Well, we know where faith comes from. Faith is not a work. It's not something that merits something for us. It's not something we do, but faith is something we receive. Faith is a gift of God. And that's what Abraham had received, and that's what he lived by. So it's not works, but it is grace. And so verse 6, Isaac settled in Gerar, and he runs into the same problem that Abraham twice ran into. He's got a wife. He's afraid that he's going to be killed so that people can take his wife. He says, she's my sister. And, and with Abraham, Sarah was his half-sister, so it was kind of a stretch, but it was kind of the truth. With Isaac, it's even further away from the truth because she's the daughter of his cousin. And in the ancient world, in that culture, you could call your cousins brothers and sisters. That could kind of work. 
but it's a real stretch here. So he's worried that he will be killed because of his wife. So he pretends that she's not. And you may think, well, she's got these twins, right? We read about that in the last chapter. She's got these two little babies. Wouldn't it be kind of obvious that she's a married woman? But we have to understand that Abraham is dead by now. When Abraham died, Isaac and Esau, uh, sorry, Jacob and Esau were 15 years old. And so by the time they get to Gerar, these guys, these young men are probably in their 20s. And it's not even certain that they went along with uh, Isaac and Rebekah. There was a famine in the land. So there's not enough food for this huge community that he has. Remember, he has thousands of people under his command. He's got a huge flocks and herds, and that requires a lot of water, a lot of food. But it doesn't mean to say that he didn't leave some of them behind uh, under the care of his sons. But in any event, it's not obvious immediately to the people around them there in Gerah that, um, that Rebekah is a married woman. And so, the Lord's teaching us something here. Isaac is operating here out of fear, not out of faith. And the the Bible is honest about that. The Bible is honest about the flaws and the sins of the great heroes of faith. The, The Bible shows that to make it clear that it is God's undeserved mercy and grace that we need. We're not in the church because we're in the line of a huge uh, heritage of of really good people that have done really good things, and God's like, I I just need these people to be my, my children, my people. Not at all. God constantly shows us that we are unworthy sinners in ourselves and that it's only by his grace that we can be his children. And we see that here in Isaac's lack of faith when he gives into fear. But sin, the Bible says, will always find you out. You can't hide it forever. It's going to be exposed either in this life or certainly at judgment day. Nothing that is hidden that will not be exposed. If you have a sin in your life and you think you've been real smart and you've kind of covered it up and you're, you're able to get away with it, you need to stop thinking that because it's not true. It's going to find you out. It's going to expose you sooner or later, and you're better off dealing with it right now, bringing it to the Lord and repenting of it. And that's what happens with Isaac. He, his sin, his lie is exposed. The king is looking out of a window, and so there was a small settlement. There's probably a, a second or third floor. He's looking through the window. He can look out. He sees perhaps into the courtyard or in, into another window of another house. Things are very open in this hot climate. There aren't Uh, all kinds of windows that are closed with with blinds in front. Things are very open. And he sees Isaac laughing with Rebecca. And you may think, well, why would that tell him that she's his wife? And you remember what we talked about earlier in an earlier sermon, what the verb Isaac means. It means to laugh. But there are more intensive forms of the verb which mean other things. They can mean to mock or even to be sexually gross Or it can also mean to be sexually intimate in a a beautiful, godly way between the husband and wife. That's what the meaning is here of the verse, of the the word. They are playing, Isaacing. He's Isaacing with Rebecca. He is playing intimately with her. So he's clearly uh, not her brother. She's not his sister. And and Bermanach is horrified. And and it's, it's interesting to see why he's horrified. 
what is this you have done to us? One of the people might easily have lain with your wife. You would have brought guilt upon us. He has this sense of, of sin, that there can be this thing called guilt before God. He's, he's got this holy fear of breaking God's law. Where does it come from? Well, we're in the transition period here between the universal revelation of God to all the world, and the, the knowledge of God was, was disappearing, but there were still pockets of it here and there. Think of um, Melchizedek, for instance, who's not connected to the people of Israel, but he's, he's a, he serves the Lord. Think of Job, who also isn't in the people of Israel. So he may have some knowledge of God generally, but remember that his father or grandfather had experienced the situation with Abraham. One of the previous Abimelechs had been visited by God, and God had said to that Abimelech, you are a dead man because you have another man's wife. And then God had punished the Abimelech and the entire court with closing the wombs and, and causing uh, his judgment upon them. This Abimelech here certainly remembers that. He doesn't want to see that happen again. What are you doing? You're going to get us into trouble with God. We, it, didn't, it wasn't pleasant the last time. We don't want to repeat that. And so even though Isaac uh, did sin in this, the Lord in his mercy turns his sin into something good in that, in that it's exposed and now he has the protection of the king. And then Isaac, he sowed, verse 12, he sowed and reaped the same year a hundredfold. Now, the fact that he sowed is an act of faith. He doesn't own any land. He has to rent land. But he sows in a time of famine. And that's an act of faith because what is sown cannot be eaten. You have a certain amount of grain. If you put it into the soil, you can't eat it. And if there isn't rain in the right time, the, the seed that you put into the soil will die and it will be wasted. And so it's an act of faith to take what could be a food source in a time of famine and put it into the ground and say, Lord, can you please make this multiply? And this act of faith is blessed by God. He reaps a hundredfold within the year. Now think about that, to, to put it in terms that we might understand more clearly, because I think most of us aren't farmers if you invest $100 and within the year it's turned into $10,000, that's a pretty good return. And that's the surprising return that he gets. That's very, very rare to get that much return, even in the best soil. God gives it in a time of famine and dryness and poor soil. This is unexpected blessing. But yet, it is blessing that comes through the ordinary means of just faithfully going out and working hard. Isaac doesn't say, well, God takes care of me. I'm going to sit here and wait for blessings to be poured out on me from heaven. He goes out and he works, and then he asks for God's blessing on his work. And that principle is still true today. What are you willing to sow in faith? What are you willing to give up or to risk in order to reap a hundredfold? There's, a, there's a, a message for us here, spiritual message for us, which we can see in Matthew chapter 19, verse 29. If you have your Bible handy, Matthew 19, verse 29. Isaac gave up a potential food source 
sowed it and waited for God's blessing upon it. This is what Jesus says to us, Matthew 19, 29. Everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. God promises us a hundredfold return. But what we need to sow to get that hundredfold return comes at a great cost. Are we willing to pay it? And so Isaac, under God's blessing, became, verse 13, very wealthy. He already was wealthy. He inherited everything from Abraham, who was very rich. Now he's even more wealthy. And this is one of the things that Esau rejected, this incredible privilege to be the king of a, an entire community of thousands of people and to be given all kinds of material blessings. Esau had just dismissed that and despised that. Now, in the Old Testament, external wealth was, was a sign of God's blessing. When you looked at someone and you saw that they had a lot of things, a lot of food, then you could say, well, God is blessing that person. It doesn't work like that in the New Testament anymore. Because in the Old Testament, God's people were, were children. We were children in the gospel. So God had to draw simple pictures and crayon for us to understand things. And so it was very vibrant colors and very easy to understand lessons. If you follow God, then you've got lots of food and you've got a comfortable life. That's changed because the church is now of age. The church understands things more in a more mature way. What is the situation now? Well, look at James chapter 2, verse 5. Just one chapter before our reading, James chapter 2, verse 5. Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? Everybody could see that Isaac was blessed by God because he had lots of stuff. But in the New Testament... Can everybody see that you are blessed by God because you are rich in faith? That's the question. Everybody knew Isaac was. What about you? Can people see that you are rich in faith? Can people see in you and your, the way you talk, the way you think, the way you live, can they see that you have a knowledge of the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the, the knowledge of God in your life, in your heart? It's too much for Abimelech. He sees Isaac growing, and, and, and he grows so much and so wealthy that he, he becomes more powerful than that little outpost of the Philistines there. He said, go away from us. You're too much for us. We can't handle this. And that happens to the believer today, too. When, when, when people see your peace, your trust in God, that you are rich in faith, then sometimes it's just too much for them. And, and they, they don't want to be with you. That's a price we have to pay sometimes. If the world really just enjoys hanging out with us and never feels threatened by who we are, then we've got to ask ourselves who we are and why that is happening. Because there's a certain level of discomfort that the ungodly will feel in the presence of the holy. And so he, he moves away, verse 17, looking at verse 17 and 22 now, he moved away. And what, what Abimelech did to him was not good. 
because he's got even more people, he's got even more flocks and herds now that need water and food. It's still a time of famine. And Abimelech says, here's the store city, here's the city which has connections to the trade routes and supplies of grain are flowing in. Get out of here and go into the wilderness. That's almost like a death sentence. It's almost like getting spaced if you're in a, 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 a spacecraft and somebody says, go out of the door, get out of here. Well, that, that's almost a death sentence. Well, it is a death sentence in space. So this is, this is a, a dangerous thing that, that Abimelech is doing to him. And Isaac has to provide water and food for all of his uh, community and for his animals. So he's digging and he's digging. He's got thousands of people, huge flocks, huge ho- uh, uh, herds. He, he needs water. He needs food. Now, he had enough military power to go head-to-head with Abimelech at this point. Remember that Abraham, with fewer men, went head-to-head with five kings. Isaac could have said, I'm not leaving. In fact, I'm going to take over this city because I got the power to do that. But he doesn't do that. He doesn't fight for his rights. He could have. It was injustice that was happening here. And, And to send people into the wilderness with no food and water... Uh, and, and to send them away from the source of food and water is an act of war. And so Isaac could have said, I'm going I'm to fight this. But Isaac understands that this is not the time. This is not the time to take the land by conquest. Isaac is a man of peace. Isaac is a man of submission to God's will. When Isaac was a young man and he could have overpowered Abraham, Isaac lay down on the altar and said, Dad, if God wants my life, then take it. He could have fought off Abraham, but he submitted to God's will. When Rachel came, oh, sorry, when Rebecca came um, to, 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 um, to, to be married to, to Isaac, where did she find him? She found him meditating in the field at night. He was a man of prayer. He was a man that lived close to God. He loved Rebecca. He loved her more deeply than anyone else besides God. There are no other women in in Isaac's life, just Rebecca. He's not like Abraham that had a few. He's not like Jacob. But there's a real sweet, intimate love between Isaac and his wife. And so, he's a man of prayer. He's a man of peace. He's a man of faith and trust. And when he digs a well and they claim it, he he reopens one of the old wells of Abraham, they claim it, he just picks up the shovel and he digs another one. God blessed me once, he can do it again. He calls the first well that they steal Essek, contention. He calls, verse 21, the second well that they steal Sitna, enmity, conflict. And then the third well works out, Rehoboth, room, space, a place to be, a room to grow, room to be faithful in God's service. And we can learn from this, brothers and sisters. There are times when God's people can stand up against injustice, and we can make use of the means that God provides to seek redress and protection. But there are other times when, as the scripture says, we joyfully accept the plundering of our property, since we know that we ourselves have a better possession and an abiding one. So the Christian does not automatically 
stand on his or her rights, especially when it comes to things. Isaac just peaceably walks back, gets away from the conflict. He does it a number of times until God provides the water he needs. And then he goes to Beersheba, verse 23. Beersheba is in the very south of the promised land. Sometimes the promised land is described as being from Dan in the north to Beersheba in the south. So again, he's hovering on the doorstep of the promised land. He can't live there. He can't claim it. He's waiting for God to give it. And Yahweh appears to him. The Lord appears to him. And there again, this is part of that birthright blessing that Esau just despised. Not only great material wealth and, and kingship, but also that priestly and prophetic blessing that God would appear and speak to the patriarch directly. Esau says, I'd rather have a nice supper than enjoy the privilege of communion with, with God. A sad thing. And so Isaac has that communion. The Lord says to him, fear not. Fear not. The world is trying to crush you. The world is trying to oppress you. The world is trying to take away your source of livelihood, your food and your water. But you have me. You have God. And that is enough. That was enough for, for Isaac. Is that enough for you, brother and sister? Is that true of you, what is true of Isaac? He understood Psalm 23. Psalm 23 hadn't been written yet, but Isaac lived by it. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And so he worships. He builds an altar. He calls on the name of the Lord. He only owns one bit of land in the promised land. It's a, a place to be buried. It's a tomb. He doesn't have a big family. All these promises of God that are so glorious, it's not really clear to him how they will or how they can be fulfilled, but he just believes. He worships, and it is the worship of faith. And as he believes, he acts. Because again, faith always goes together with obedience to our calling. Isaac's servants dug a well. He depends totally on God, and he works hard so that God can bless through that means. They keep digging. They keep working. And that's true for us as well, brothers and sisters. God's blessings flow through faithful obedience to our office and duties and calling. We trust in God. We worship God for his blessings and goodness, and we, we get to work. After we've worshiped on the Lord's Day, we get to work on the Monday. And the world can see that God's blessings flow in this way. The world can see that the more they try to harass and, and attack Isaac, the more God is with him, the more God blesses him. And so they, they come to be with him. They come to talk to him. The Lord has been with you, they say. They even use the name Yahweh. They, they recognize that Isaac has a special relationship with God, that he lives in covenant with God. And, and dimly, they see the truth of what Paul will write many years later, that nothing can separate the believer from the love of God. Nothing. And they see that, and it makes them uneasy and afraid. And so they come to Isaac to, to try to make peace with him. Now, sometimes people can mistreat and 
hurt and oppress you. And, and when they do, the Christian reacts in love and peace. We remove ourselves from conflict. We don't seek it. We look for a reaction of righteousness in peace. And that is unearthly. And that is unsettling. And that stirs up in those who hate God as they attack us. That stirs up a faint fear of God. Because when you react in an Isaac-like way, which is a Christ-like way, then they perceive that you have in your life a power that they cannot understand or overcome. And so you will sometimes see that when that happens, people that have been really mistreating you and, 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 and abusing you and hurting you and, and being unjust to you, and when you react in an Isaac, in a Christ-like way, you often see them come to you and, and they'll say, please pray for me. Because they see that there's a power at work in you that they do not understand. And that's what happens. They come to him and they ask for peace, a covenant of peace. And they, they get that. Verse 31. Isaac doesn't have a long list of, of uh, problems and, and all kinds of hang-ups that he has with these people. And he's got, you've got you to fix all these things before I can have a good relationship with you. Isaac sends them on their way and they departed from him in peace. When we know God's forgiveness to us, then we know how to forgive others. We know how to live in peace with others if we live in peace with God. When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him, says the Proverbs, and that's what's happening here in Isaac's life. And then right after they leave, more signs of God's goodness, his servants come, we found water. And, 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 and you know, it's hard for us to kind of clue in as to what that means because we turn the tap on and water comes out. But this is the desert region. And you walk around, and if you don't find water real quick within a day or two, you're going to die. And so that they found water, that means life. Life is something that the world takes and the world denies, but it is something that God gives. God gives life, and that's what Isaac gets. And so there he is. There's Isaac at Beersheba on, the, on the, the doorway, the doorstep of the promised land. He has his daily bread and water from God. He loves his wife. He has his family. He works hard and faithfully, and he has more than enough to live. And his life is centered around the worship of God. He lives by the word of God. He lives in peace with God and at peace with his neighbors. He lives on the edge of the promised land, waiting to inherit it, waiting on the Lord, living by faith, and his life can be described by the words we read in James chapter 3, a harvest of righteousness sown in peace. That's Isaac's life. But what about Esau? Because that's how the chapter ends. What about Esau? Esau is the opposite. Esau took two wives. And when you take two wives, you don't take two wives for love. You take them for lust. That's what drives Esau. I want. I want it now. It is the confession, the credo of the carnal man. I want. Give me. Give it to me now. He rejects the way of Christ. He rejects the way of the cross. He is unsettled. He is discontent. He prefers 
the present pleasures of this world rather than future promise of eternal glory. He chooses friendship with the world, knowing full well that this means enmity with God. What Esau is embracing here at the end of our chapter is a theology of glory. I want, I want it now, and I get it. And what he rejects is the way of the cross. What does the Bible say? Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. For the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Esau is sowing to the flesh, and he's reaping corruption. What about you? You live on the edge of eternity. You are waiting to inherit the world. Which way are you choosing? The way of Esau or the way of Isaac? Isaac is the man of peace. And Isaac follows the way of Christ, the prince of peace. And the way of the Christ, the way of the cross, is described by Jesus in this way. Most assuredly, I say to you, Unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it will remain alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. He who loves his life will lose it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Amen.